Hello, I'm Caleb Howard, and this is Tales from Sacred Texts. The world is built on stories. From the beginning of time, humans have immersed themselves in legends and myth. When God himself wanted to explain to us what he was like, he didn't push elaborate treatises, but instead told stories about humanity. In this podcast, I tackle the concept of religion through stories and legends. Told through a 21st century lens, I explain to religious and non-religious people alike the stories that lie at the very heart of the belief that maybe there is a God, and maybe he really is good. I've recently been told that I can be pretty ambiguous about which story I'm telling and my thoughts on its validity. And it's true, I haven't been the best at making my podcast accessible. So I'm going to try, starting today, to improve at introducing my stories. So here goes. Today, we'll be doing two stories from the Protestant Bible in the book of Daniel. Personally, I accept the Protestant Bible as authoritative religious text. Both of the stories we're doing depict an evil theocratic government that tries to force God's people to worship something ridiculous, and these people are threatened with a terrible fate if they refuse to give in. This episode is about God's people refusing to comply. We've covered the book of Daniel twice before, and it's confusing because the Catholic version of Daniel, called the Apocrypha, adds two chapters. I covered the Apocryphal Adventures of Daniel during one of my first episodes. Saving an innocent woman, convincing the king his god was fake, and poisoning a dragon. These have a very different style and feel than Daniel's canonical adventures, and, as with all my stories from season one, I probably could have told the apocryphal adventures better. Should I re-release some of my season one highlights? Please send requests to talesfromsacredtexts at gmail.com. Talesfromsacredtexts at gmail.com. The canonical book of Daniel... The parts agreed on by both Catholics and Protestants contain several stories. Within the book, there is a chiasm, or a set of chapters that parallel each other. Chapters 2 and 7 are prophetic. Chapters 4 and 5 are about proud rulers getting what they deserve, a story that I told in episode 313. And chapters 3 and 6 are about the persecution of God's people by tyrants. We're doing chapters 3 and 6 this time. So I've just done a brief overview of where we're at in the book of Daniel, but your listening experience will probably be greatly improved if you've already listened to episode 313 and the supplemental on the partly Iron Man. I'd recommend going back and listening to both before you start this episode. I'm also doing a new thing where I rate the episodes for violence, sexual violence, and discriminatory language in the description, so check the episode description if you're worried about hearing any of that. With all of that settled... Let's get into the story. Mishael rolled his eyes. Why did it always have to be barbaric threats of death? A few months ago, it was being cut in pieces. Now it was being burnt alive. He was getting used to them, but it was still horrifying. King Nebuchadnezzar absolutely did not care. First, your name is Meshach. Second, do what I tell you and you won't be burnt alive. Dying is a choice. Not much of a choice if the only other option is being burnt alive. But still, Mishael replied, 
They were choosing the burnt alive option. The king's order to worship a big golden statue was too much. They only worshipped Yahweh, so this was going to be a hard pass for them. His two friends shouted their agreement. The king was apoplectic. He would have strangled the life out of the three, but his advisors reminded him that it hurt worse to be burnt alive, which he did have to admit was true. Also, he wasn't in the best shape due to his constant indulgence of every whim. He probably couldn't kill three young men in the prime of their lives with his bare hands. The young men thought back. This hadn't been a surprise. The three friends had been sitting around for the past month, knowing it was going to come down to this sooner or later. They lived in a tyrannical kingdom, and when the king had decided to smelt a gigantic statue out of pure gold, the three young men knew it couldn't end well. It took time for the king to build the statue, and the whole thing really came down to the three friends sitting and watching it be built with growing dread. The stories coming out of the building project, well, they weren't pretty. The king learned that even when you were a tyrant who picked one of two uncreative, but admittedly very horrible torture alternatives for people who didn't do exactly what you wanted, things still took time. You could threaten people as much as you wanted with being cut in pieces or burned alive, but there was only so fast that people could physically work. The king still cut a few of the slower laborers in pieces to put the fear of the gods into them. Nebuchadnezzar sucked. There was a reason why the king was bad enough to be turned into an animal later on in life. The three friends weren't exactly sure what was going to happen when the thing was built, but their very names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, signaled to them that it was going to be dehumanizing. Their very identity had been forcibly taken from them. At birth, they had been given the names Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so that's what I'll be calling them. I don't want to dignify the terrible oppression they went through, but just know that a brutal king was able to strip them of their identity so completely that even history, elevating the three young men to hero status, barely remembers their true identity. With the way that the king had dehumanized them in the past, they expected merely more of the same. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah knew the whole thing was ramping up when the king summoned hundreds of thousands of people from thousands of miles away to travel across open desert to Babylon, where they were ordered to worship the image. For emphasis, the king set up a big furnace nearby the statue, which anyone who refused would immediately be carted off and thrown into. This was 10,000 degrees beyond anything remotely sane, but the word sane was only used to describe the Babylonian king by sycophants who choked out the words against any touchstone of reality. Were the three friends going to go along with this foolishness? Absolutely not. One thing that can be said on their behalf was that they were brave. They looked straight ahead at a roaring fire meant for them and laughed into the very face of death. When the musical instruments blared and hundreds of thousands of people prostrated themselves, they stood as straight as arrows. They even risked a chuckle at the ridiculousness of the whole thing. They were all in now, may as well enjoy the ride. Ironically, the guys who snitched to the king were the same guys that the three friends had saved from being cut in pieces a few months before when the king had had his bizarre dream. The co-workers didn't have to say thank you, but they could have just looked the other way. 
The three friends had helped them get out of a really bad situation, and now these jerks were thanking them by trying to get them fired. Pun intended. The king was enraged when he heard the co-workers report, and he was even more enraged when he called the three in front of them and they told him that they weren't going to worship the statue. People were not allowed to talk to him like that. Nebuchadnezzar would have thrown just about anybody else into the fire right about now, but he really liked these kids. So he made them the special offer of a second chance, explaining to them that this was it. He didn't care who they were. If they disobeyed again, he was going to burn them alive. That would be it. Once they got thrown into the fire, they would die. Their lives would be over. Could he emphasize this any more? Not even their God could save them from him. He really didn't want to kill them, but he was absolutely going to if they didn't bow. So seriously, your God can't save you, so why serve him? Serve this image. Please bow. The Hebrews responded coldly. They would not be bowing. God absolutely could save them, but even if he didn't, they still weren't going to bow down to the king's gold statue. Even if they knew for a fact that God would do nothing to intervene as they burned alive, this was an act of rebellion against the king. The three Hebrews served Yahweh first and foremost, and they would never bend the knee to this statue. The king roared. He went full chaotic evil and yelled to the nearest guard to heat the fire seven times hotter than it had ever been heated before. Did he know what would happen? No. They were just going to figure out what happened when the fire got that hot. Seven times hotter, King Nebuchadnezzar reminded the guards. Seven times? They didn't have a thermometer, and was that even physically possible? He was asking them to heat the fire to approximately the temperature of the surface of the sun. The king shrieked. That was for them to figure out. The guards protested again. I mean, it wasn't really for them to care, but the king did want these guys to suffer, right? The hotter they heated the fire, the faster it would kill the three Hebrews. So there was that. The king roared in rage. He did not need them to tell him how to do his job. Did they know what seven times hotter meant? It meant go, do that, right now, no questions, or they would feel what seven times hotter meant. The king specifically selected the strongest guards to tie up the Hebrews. Meanwhile, the rest of the guards were working on making it at least look like they were heating the fire way hotter, which was a great attempt at job security, but maybe a bit too effective of an attempt because the three guards who threw the Hebrews in ended up catching fire and burning to death. So it goes. The king shook his head. What a pity to lose his strongest men. At least they weren't alive to be leaving any negative reviews on Glassdoor. Like seriously, you could list pay on there now. Way too much information for a prospective employee to know. 
The king rolled his eyes. Living wage? The only living wage he knew of was him allowing you to go home alive, and unfortunately these men hadn't earned that today. But when the king looked up from his tablet with all the one-star reviews on Glassdoor, he did a double-take. He checked with his advisors. Have you ever just completely lost your mind when you were angry? Like, yeah, he definitely did that. There were three charred bodies on the ground that proved that he had anger issues, but he thought that he could still at least count when he was angry. But he had definitely thrown three guys in. He was sure he'd thrown three guys in, but now he saw four, walking around in the fire like they were on a spring picnic. The advisors nodded. He could definitely count right. They'd only thrown in three. What was this about a fourth? Okay, they saw it now. They weren't sure where the fourth guy had come from or what he was doing in the fire. That was a surprise to them too. The king began to tell his advisors that they should get on that pronto, but he choked on his words. He tried again, remembering how he had told the three Hebrews that no god could save them. He finally managed to utter the thought that was on his mind. How come the fourth looked like a god become flesh? The Hebrews took this chance to shout at the king out of the fire that that was exactly who it was. Their God had stepped into the fire with them and saved them. The king's mouth hung open. Seeing as he had an ultra powerful God standing right before him, he chose his words carefully and obsequiously. Servants of the best of all the gods, Come out of the fire and come to me. Thousands of people who had been bowing down to the golden statue were now crowded around the three friends. Their mouths were hanging open. They had seen something unexplainable right before their eyes. There was a god that would come through like this for his followers. Some of them fell on their knees right there. The others fell on their knees very quickly when Nebuchadnezzar screamed out that he would cut anyone in pieces who said anything negative about this god, interspersing this brutal threat with words of praise in Yahweh's favor. I mean, the king's was a logical reaction. What else can you do when you just tried to burn some people alive and their god is standing right in front of you and everything you know about gods is that they're super vindictive? It was around this point that Nebuchadnezzar began to nominally recognize the power of the Hebrews' God, but it takes until the events of the previous Daniel episode for him to really take anything that God says seriously. Until then, he just keeps up his brutality and just sometimes whitewashes it a bit with statements about the Hebrews' God when he feels like it. In case the statement that it takes him until the previous Daniel episode to recognize where he'd gone wrong is confusing, I get it. I've done the episodes on Daniel thematically rather than chronologically. If that bothers you a lot, pause this episode at the upcoming sponsor break, listen to the entirety of episode 313, then resume this episode. At this point, I admit that I probably should have done the episodes chronologically instead, but that ship has sailed. We'll continue with our thematic episode. 
We're not quite sure what Daniel was doing during the fiery furnace fiasco. It seems quite odd to have him absent in his self-titled book. My conjecture is that the king arranged for Daniel to be absent during the statue worship because he knew Daniel would refuse and he didn't want to have to save face by being forced to kill his best wise man. As for why the three friends weren't sent away too, there were hundreds of thousands of captive Hebrews that were totally okay with worshiping the statue, or at least willing to do it, so the king didn't realize the three friends would object until it was too late, and by that time, he was irrationally angry at being disobeyed and he had to save face, at least in his mind. For any of you who think that's some weird logic, you've got to remember that these ancient kings don't think like you and me. They live their life on full chaotic evil comic book villain mode because they can. They're a life lesson on why no human being should ever get absolute power. Anyway, here's a sponsor break. If any of you want to do Tales from Sacred Texts in chronological mode, pause here. If not, we'll continue. Years had passed, and as we talked about in episode 313, spoilers, Belteshazzar had been killed by Cyrus and the Persians had taken over. The new king, named Darius, wasn't particularly special. He was rather old and fairly tyrannical. Nothing new. As for Daniel, he was very old, nearly 80 years old. His friends had passed on. Daniel was no longer young, spry, and full of life. He was old and tired. But though time passes, like the old donkey says in Animal Farm, nothing really ever changes in the long run. Because our story begins with Daniel's co-workers snitching on him. Daniel's co-workers sat around drinking their morning coffee, making sure Daniel was at his desk, and whispered about whether he'd posted anything politically incorrect on Twitter that morning. They went to lunch and didn't invite Daniel, discussing whether he'd completed the latest project on time. The accountant spent his afternoon checking the books to see if Daniel maybe took out a reimbursement for personal expense. The employees met secretly after work for drinks, scheming to see if they could get Daniel to react poorly and film it. But Daniel never did anything remotely sketchy. The more Daniel's coworkers sneaked and skulked, the less they found. They were out from morning until night trying to find some moral failing or even minor slip-up on Daniel's behalf, but they found nothing. Which is really badass on Daniel's behalf, if you ask me. The co-workers then went with the Galaxy Brain solution that if your enemy wasn't doing anything illegal, then go and make what he's already doing illegal. Specifically, they knew that they could not get him for any moral violation. He was just too good. The only chance they had was to interfere with the worship of his god. Daniel really loved Yahweh, so maybe a law against praying to Yahweh? The king would have their heads, literally, the moment they openly suggested such a law, because he knew that it was a trap for Daniel. The king was mean, not stupid. But flattery might just do the trick. What if they suggested a law that people could only pray to the king for 30 days, and not to any other god? That included Yahweh, most of the populace would be more or less okay with it, and the king would be elated at such a quote-unquote honor. 
And by more or less okay with it, I do mean that the populace knew the king could and did make laws that were far worse. So choose your battles. So the comic book level evil co-workers went to King Darius, told him to please live forever, and also consider their very great proposal for new law. As an interruption, I want to quote Bree from C.S. Lewis's Horse and His Boy on the matter of telling a king to live forever. Why should I talk slaves and fools talk? I don't want him to live forever, and I know he won't live forever whether I want him to or not. But these co-workers were definitely slaves and fools, and their ploy worked. The king enthusiastically consented to their proposed law and set the punishment if someone prayed to any other god. Death by being eaten by lions! When he heard the news, Daniel clasped his hands together and prayed, laughing. At least they weren't stuck on the same two punishments of one being cut in pieces or two being burnt alive. The king was enjoying some mild creativity. To spare you the tedium, Daniel prays with open window like he always does, refusing to show fear. The co-workers who are sitting outside his window spying run and tell the king. The king curses himself because he signed such a ridiculously stupid bill into law. Yeah, that was kind of on you, Darius, Daniel replied. I mean, he wasn't shaming the king, but he kind of was. That had been so stupid. Could the king just not throw him to the lions now and rescind the law for good? He was an absolute monarch. Darius shook his head. He knew he'd been stupid, and he wished he could take the whole thing back, but the Medes and the Persians had a law. You could not repeal any of their laws. Daniel rolled his eyes. Is this just plot armor? I mean, seriously. These guys never change their minds about anything in thought? Maybe we should change the law before something worse happens? Darius shuddered. Change the law? I mean, sure, sometimes they didn't like a law, but they'd stick with it to the bitter end. They'd always stuck with it, and honestly, sometimes it worked out pretty poorly, but they currently ruled the known world, so in aggregate, it seemed to have worked out pretty well. The Persians were really serious about this unchanging law stuff too, like, just a hypothetical, and this was a big hypothetical, but if the king had signed a law ordering his people to commit genocide, the best he could do was sign a new law ordering the victims to fight back. Oh, it was like that. Fine, it was worth a shot. Daniel guessed he'd go and get eaten by the lions now. King Darius walked alongside Daniel as the soldiers handcuffed him and marched him to the den where the lions lived and ate people all the time because that's a totally comforting thing to have in your kingdom. The king lowered his voice so only Daniel could hear. He was confident. Daniel's guide would not betray him. Daniel would come out alive. The king nearly cried as a stone was placed over the entrance to the lion's den, and the den was sealed with a royal seal, forbidding anyone from entering and rescuing Daniel on pain of death. The king paced all night, refusing any form of food or entertainment. How could he relax when he'd sentenced his friend to a bloody death? Have you ever stayed up all night, scared, anxious, irrationally afraid that the night would never end and it would be dark forever? That's how Darius felt all night. 
He paced, frightfully irritable, until the faintest crack of dawn appeared in the eastern sky. Then he ran, ran as fast as he possibly could, the royal guards protesting for him to wait until he reached the den where Daniel was entombed. He yelled into the den, anguished, begging Daniel to confirm he was still alive. Daniel shouted back. His God had saved him because he had done nothing wrong. God had not even let the lions touch him. As Daniel was lifted by sturdy ropes to the mouth of the den, he told the king that while he had done nothing wrong, there were some people... Yeah, the king knew, and he was going to have the lions eat all Daniel's co-workers, their wives, their children, and... Daniel shuddered. He meant that maybe they'd throw the ringleaders in and see if they could survive a night with the lions. Just the ringleaders, though. But killing everyone and their families was what the king wanted to do, and because it was the days of absolute monarchy, it's what the king did. The king had every single one of Daniel's co-workers, their wives, and their children thrown into the lion's den. The lions did not waste a second. They, and quote, crushed all of their bones before they reached the floor of the den. Yikes. The king nearly vomited. Maybe just the ringleaders next time? Daniel shook his head. Next time? The king wouldn't be passing any more laws sentencing him to die in a pit of lions, would he? He was over 80 years old and had had plenty of excitement for one lifetime. And that's where we'll leave Daniel, but he certainly gets a lot more excitement in his final years. For those who are interested in prophecy, and y'all should be, it's crazy stuff, I'd recommend a detailed study of Daniel 7-12, to but I'll just give a preview here. God gives Daniel two reboots of the statue vision, this time focusing on the rise of the Antichrist. God gives Daniel a preview of the Judgment Day, and God shows Daniel the details of the future interplay between first the Seleucid and the Ptolemaic dynasties, and later between the religious and secular opposition to God, until the end of time. We don't know exactly what happened to Daniel after the visions finished. By this point, Daniel was a very old man. The visions suddenly cease, but I like to think that God told Daniel that he could rest, but that he would rise from the dead at the end of time to claim his reward. And one day, Daniel will receive eternal life with the God he knew so well. The theme of these two stories is deliverance. The stories make it clear that only God can grant deliverance, and sometimes he doesn't. The three friends acknowledge that they might die, but that's a risk they're willing to take. Daniel never says anything about his own survival. He faces the lions bravely and allows God to choose. See, some people mistake Christianity as a get-out-of-suffering-free card. Pray this prayer and God will make everything better. But after hearing the heroic stories of the priests who died in Nazi concentration camps, the pastors who died in Russian gulags, and the countless ordinary Christians who have died in horrible ways, these same people are forced to either give up on God or come up with bizarre rationales to preserve the shreds of their faith. Many have become unbelievers when God fails to save their beloved family member from a tragic death. 
And if God is expected to protect his people from suffering, then they're completely right to leave a religion that does not deliver on its promises. But that's never what Christianity promised. Not ever. What Christianity does is it turns the world upside down. Reading the book of Acts, it's clear that in the early days of Christianity, even the unbelievers knew the effect that Christianity had on people. Christianity turns on its head the motivations and morals of a person and changes their values and priorities. Particular to these stories of deliverance, death no longer becomes something to be feared. There is a resurrection. In Hebrews, we're told that Jesus came to, quote, free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Paul exults in the Christian's victory over death, quoting Old Testament poetry. Where, O death, is your sting? When Paul is faced with a martyr's death, he spends a chapter discussing which one he'd prefer. He doesn't know. If he stays alive, he can do more for Jesus, but if he dies, he gets to see Jesus again. Not only is death something he'd accept, but he eventually concludes that it is, and I quote, better by far. No wonder the ancient Romans feared the Christians. They were threatened with torture, but instead of shrinking back, they greeted death like an old friend. The things that motivated Christians simply baffled the Romans. They could not beat an enemy they could not understand. God's miracles of deliverance are a way to tide us over, to give us Christians hope that God really does have power. In the Old Testament, the ancient Hebrews celebrated a festival called the First Fruits, rejoicing in the very beginning of the harvest and delighting in the fact there would be much more where that came from. The First Fruits was to remind them that we only see little traces of God's power right now, but that there is so much more that will be revealed one day. Even in modern days, we can find fantastic stories of deliverance if we merely search a little bit. Stories of people who have seen angels face to face. God does these fantastic things as a kind of first fruits to show that he's capable of delivering on the final reward. Another reason that God delivers us is to warn the evil people that he is capable of delivering to show them that they cannot exercise their hubris unchecked, to slow down the spread of darkness so that good has a chance to flourish. As long as this world lasts, pain is a way of life. Everyone has to endure suffering. Those who try to avoid suffering end up with more. God is capable of delivering us from individual sufferings, but he cannot change the laws of how the universe works. As long as sin exists, we are bound to suffer. So instead of sparing us from momentary pain, whether from death, tragedy, or loss, God's deliverance usually encompasses a deliverance from the slavery of fear. He frees those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. He gives us comfort that those who die will rise again. He tells us the things that we lose in this life have a way of coming back to us in the next. Instead of delivering us from the bad things that we face in this life, he delivers us from the myopia we are so often caught in. He shows us that tomorrow holds such better days. 
And when he does deliver us from something bad that we face, he makes it spectacular. A kind of hope, a first fruits, that we can rely on in dark days. A reminder for the rest of our lives that God has power and he'll come through when we need it the most. That's all for this week. Next time, we'll be returning to John Bunyan for way too many more courtroom scenes, demons who are all Catholic, and a bizarre new allegory that is entirely on the nose, but a whole lot of fun. We'll be telling the story of the Holy War. Thank you so much for listening. Please go to Spotify, leave a five-star review, and check out the cool artwork. Then tell your friends about Tales from Sacred Texts. The whole process should take about five minutes, so I'm not asking for a big-time commitment here. But I am encouraged to work harder on my podcast and to release more episodes when more people listen, so I'd love the help pumping up my listen count. Anyway, that's it, and I hope you all have a wonderful weekend. Credits to myself for script writing in the intro theme. Credits to Evoked Music for accompanying music in the closing theme. Special thanks to the royalty-free music on Pixabay and YouTube for providing additional accompanying music, and to Anchor Podcast for making the whole thing possible. Finally, credits to the audience for keeping this whole thing going. Have a great weekend, everyone, and see you next time.